Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, senior pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. We're delighted to have all of you here with us, whether you are here in our gymnasium in person or joining us in the St. Louis area on KFUO AM 850 or anywhere in the world, really, on KFUO.org. Welcome. Uh, Maybe a little word of introduction. Uh, Pastor Smith, who has been teaching Romans here for some time, is taking a a break, a vacation for the summer. Uh, That class that he is teaching ordinarily has a history of breaking for the summer. All the way back to some of you remember Dr. James Veltz teaching it, Dr. Jeff Kloa, uh, more recently Dr. Mark Seifried. And so that class typically breaks over the summer, and that's what's happening. Uh, Romans and Pastor Smith will be back at some point uh, in the early fall, and will resume right where he left off. During the summer, during the break, we're going to begin a different book of the Bible. Rather than continue through Romans, we'll let him finish that. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke and start with that today. For those who are here, I hope you have a Bible or have one handy. There there is a cart of Bibles over here. Uh, This is probably the first class I've ever done here at St. Paul's that I don't have a handout for you. Uh, We're just going to be reading in the scriptures, and uh, so it would be important for you to have a Bible if you want to follow along. Uh, Before we begin uh, looking at the scriptures, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O triune God, on this day we celebrate all that you are. In spite of your power and majesty, you primarily also are a God of love and compassion and mercy. We see that in the sending of your own Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die and rise again so that our sins might be forgiven and we might have everlasting life. We see it in the sending of the Holy Spirit who calls us to faith, enlightens us with his gifts, and sanctifies and keeps us in this one true faith. We thank you also for your word and ask your Holy Spirit's presence here with us this morning that we might continue to grow in our knowledge of that word and especially also how it applies to our lives as your children. Be with us and bless us to that end then and we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's open right up to Luke chapter one. That's a good place to start. Uh, Luke is... The author, as you probably know or may know, of actually two books in the New Testament, both Luke and Acts. They are a two-volume set, and they compose about 28% of the entire New Testament. So Luke, along with Paul, and I suppose we'd include John there as well when you consider uh, his gospel and the three epistles and Revelation, uh, those three gentlemen... Uh, were used by God, inspired by God, to write a, a, a big chunk of our New Testament. And so we'll start looking at Luke uh, here this morning. Luke is going to be the gospel reading that we will be hearing in church right after Thanksgiving and beyond. When we get into Advent, we'll go into what's called Series C, and that is the series of readings that feature Luke as the gospel reading. So we also thought it'd be kind of good to uh, get a bit of a head start on that, so you'll hear them in church and think, oh yeah, I remember when we, when we looked at that in the Bible class as well. Let's take a look at Luke 1, verse 1, and I want to compare the openings to both Luke and Acts to show you the similarities between those two, and the conclusion again that Luke is the author of both. Let's take a look, I'll read, starting at verse uh, 1 of Luke chapter 1. And notice again the similarities here when we get into Acts. 
Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay? So that's the introduction, we would say, to the book of the Gospel of Luke. Now let's take a look, if you would flip over, to Acts 1, verse 1. And we want to read the first three verses of Acts 1. And again, we'll note the similarities that exist between these two. Okay, so Acts 1, verse 1 and following. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now notice in Acts 1, he starts off by saying in the first book, so referencing a prior book that he had written, uh, and again, we believe he is referencing there the gospel according to Luke. Did you notice a common name uh, that is listed in both of these? Theophilus, yeah, that name Theophilus. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, uh, what that, who that might be. But uh, there's a similarity there also, that he is writing this again for this Theophilus. And it certainly is the case, this is the testimony of the early church also is very solid, that both Luke and Acts were written by Luke himself. Okay? In terms of dates for the book, uh, the Gospels, we have what we call the Synoptic Gospels. First of all, have you ever heard that term before? The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called Synoptic Gospels because that word means same vision or same view. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of course, are uh, there's great similarities in that they present the, primarily the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in similar ways. There are some differences, some differences in emphasis as well. John, on the other hand, is quite, quite different uh, from the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic, so-called synoptic Gospels. And we believe that Matthew, and again, there's a lot written on this, so I don't want to get lost in the, in the, in the weeds here, but... Uh, I believe Matthew, a lot of scholars believe Matthew was written first. There are a lot of others think Mark was. But if you go with the Matthew first, it's around 50 A.D. that we think Matthew was written. Uh, Mark, about 55, 50 to 60, somewhere in there. Let's be a little generous, 50 to 60. Luke, we think, is about somewhere between 55 and 60 A.D. So it's probably about 30 to 35 years, something like that, after Jesus has been crucified, died, raised, and finally ascended, about 30 to 35 years later, something like that. Then John, of course, much later, 
um, 90 AD or beyond that even. So much, much later is the Gospel of John. But we think Luke around 55 to 60 or so. Now, Luke seldom references himself, and unfortunately we know surprisingly little about him. You noticed that when we read the introduction to the Gospel, and then also the introduction to uh, the book of Acts, he doesn't mention himself at all, by name. And so we have to deduce that it is, again, Luke, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Anybody know Luke's occupation? Physician. Yeah, very good. This is a smart class. This is above, above average. Uh, if you, if you want to look up, take, uh, keep your finger here in Luke, and look at Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. And we'll look at verse 14, just to show you where we get this from. It's, not, it's actually in the scriptures. It's not something that you know, the church just kind of made up or tradition uh, alone. It is attested in scripture. So Colossians 4, verse 14. And it says here, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Keep your finger there in Colossians 4 while you're there. I'm going to make another point in just a minute there. But notice that that word physician literally means, in the original language, one who heals. So a a good way of saying it is a physician. Uh, There's been a recent, relatively recent book written that uh, talks about, speculates, that uh, Luke was also a slave uh, and uh, learned the craft of healing uh, by following others. And uh, I would say, again, that's that's purely speculative, the author, uh, but there are some reasons behind it. But for us, it's enough to know that he is a physician. Now, think about what we know about St. Paul, particularly his physical condition. Why might it be good for St. Paul if there was a physician who ends up being a partner with him in the gospel, and actually traveling with him a good bit of the time. Remember what Paul had? Thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that is. Um, it's, It's listed or it's referenced in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And Paul, just before that, talks about all the visions he's had and so on. We don't know exactly what this thorn in the flesh was. There are some who consider that it was perhaps uh, malaria, which was pretty uh, frequent and, and rampant in that part of the world at that time. Uh, There are others that say Paul suffered from migraine headaches. Um, Could have been, I suppose, connected to malaria as well. The theory that I've always favored myself, and again, we don't know for sure. We have to say in the end, we don't know for sure. But the one I have always favored is that he had some type of eye condition, eye problem. And um, a couple reasons, I think, kind of uh, maybe uh, favor this idea. Remember, how was Paul... Converted, He's on the road to Damascus. The risen Lord appears to him. And what happens with his eyesight? He's blinded, isn't he? And then finally, he, through Ananias, uh, God gives him his sight back. Was that some kind of lingering uh, 
ailment with his eyes that, as he says here, kept him from being too proud. The word literally means puffed up. <laughs> Big head, can't fit through the door anymore. And uh, was, that, was that a constant? Because what would Paul be thinking every time he has a problem with that, he thinks back to what? What he used to do, right? He used to persecute the church and the grace of God that was given to him. The other, another item that I think commends that theory, if you read the last verses of the epistle to the Galatians, Paul says there that, see now with what large letters I write to you. And we think that Paul at that point took the pen over himself and started writing and had to do so in order for him to see it, you know, with larger letters. Some of us, as we get older, can empathize with, uh, with Paul on that. But, you know, they used to, they used to work with, with secretaries, with an amanuensis, they were called. And, but Paul takes over at the end of Galatians and wants them to know he's actually writing this himself. He's not just dictating it and someone else writing it down. And again, the use of those large letters. So again, I want to be clear, we don't know for sure, but I would, if somebody asked me, I would favor the idea that is some eye ailment, some eye problem, perhaps lingering from his conversion, that he continued to suffer with. And remember, three times he says he asked the Lord to take it away, and three times the Lord's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. So, was Luke a traveling companion with Paul, as we'll see here in a moment, was he there not only as a partner in the gospel, but was he there also as a personal physician to assist him? Ruth? Uh-huh. Good point. That's a great, yes, that's a great point. The point that Paul also talks about how he was, you know, beaten with rods, uh, stoned and left for dead, adrift at sea. Uh, so, yeah, a physician would be a pretty good, <laughs> pretty uh, needed uh, help at that time, after those times as well. And so, you know, the, pointing out again, uh, was Luke more than merely a, a companion? Was he there also to lend his, his help and assistance as a personal physician? Again, speculation. Um, we believe that Paul is a Gentile. I told you to leave your finger there in Colossians 4. Here's, here's where we come through. Um, we believe he was a Gentile. In Colossians 4, uh, Paul relates all those who were with him who were of the circumcision party. Now, the, circum the circumcision party would be, by nature, Jews, Jewish, right? And he does not list Luke in that group. He lists him later on. And we think if Luke were Jewish, he would have included Luke in that list. If you look at Colossians 4, starting at verse 10... Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Eustace, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Then, notice he goes on, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. In other words, he's, he's from Colossae. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And now here comes that verse. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. 
as does Demas. So we believe Luke was a Gentile, and that is the outside of the scriptures attestation also that he was not a Jew by birth, but was a Gentile. Okay. Uh, real quickly, we won't spend a lot of time on this. As I mentioned, he was a traveling companion of Paul. How do we know this? In the book of Acts, there are a number of sections that are called the we sections, the we sections, where all of a sudden, Luke writing goes from talking about Paul in the third person to we. In other words, he's along for what's happening. Uh, won't go into this as I said, in great detail, but you know, on the second missionary trip, if you look at Acts 16, 11, there's the verse, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. Again, we made a direct voyage. So he is right along with Paul, again, as a partner in the gospel, maybe also as a personal physician. And then he's also on the third missionary trip with Paul. He's also on, when Paul appeals to the emperor, he's on the trip with Paul back uh, to Rome itself. So he was there as an eyewitness for all the stuff that happened uh, with Paul. Uh, many, many of the things that happened with Paul. By the way, is, was Luke one of the 12 disciples? No, uh, was not. And we'll see in the introduction what he has to do. Um, if you look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, it's kind of sad, but it reveals something about Luke here as well. 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. 2 Timothy, <clears throat> we think probably the final book that Paul wrote before he was executed. We think Peter and Paul were both executed very close together in the spring or early summer of 68 A.D. Okay? So about, roughly, eight to ten years after Luke writes, Paul ends up being executed by Nero. And, uh, of course, the story with Peter, uh, he was going to be crucified and said, I am not worthy to die in the same manner that my Lord did, and requested to be crucified upside down, and was. So many times you'll see a symbol, maybe in a stained glass window, of an upside-down cross, and that's a reference to how Peter uh, died as a martyr. It's, it's to call attention to that. But take a look at 2 Timothy 4.11. Now, Paul is, again, in prison. And he says here, Luke alone is with me. Nobody else is there except Luke. And he says, you know, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Um, so again, it appears that Luke is very loyal to Paul. The others have deserted now that when, when he is in prison, when Paul is in prison, but Luke is there. Luke alone is with me. And again, you get the impression um, of his loyalty as a partner. Uh, so we don't know where he is from. Uh, there is speculation again about where Luke was born. Uh, we don't know, frankly, how he became a Christian. Uh, some, again, want to ascribe that credit to Paul, but in the end we have to say we just do not know how he was converted uh, to Christianity as a Gentile, not as a Jew, but as a Gentile. So we know very little about him. Um, so in summary, we can say he's a Gentile, a physician. Uh, he's well-educated, it appears. The Greek that he writes with in his Gospel and in Acts 
is a high level. In fact, there are a lot of words that only appear in Luke, <laughs> appear anywhere else in the New Testament. Exact opposite of the Gospel of John, which is very simple Greek. That's what all the beginning seminary students like to read from, is from the book of John, Gospel of John. But very well educated, apparently, because of the level of language that he uses. Um, again, accompanies Paul and a very, uh, it seems, loyal uh, friend and, again, possibly personal position for Paul. Um, just a few characteristics of this gospel. Compared to the others, it presents the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in a way that is both practical and tells us what it means for salvation. Luke seems to be very concerned for this Theophilus and then anybody else who reads that they know the way to salvation. Uh, secondly, uh, it's the most thorough account of Christ, even, even starting before his birth. Every Christmas Eve here at St. Paul's, you will hear the uh, gospel story of Christ's incarnation from the gospel of Luke. And many of us have grown up every year hearing that account, that account that is only in the gospel of Luke. We don't have it anywhere else. So it even starts before, as we'll see, even before he is born, and goes all the way through his ascension. So it is thorough. Um, it is, um, again, I, there's a special concern, and we'll point this out, there's a special concern for women, for the poor, and for sinners. Many times, the only account saying that Jesus was there, for example, eating with tax collectors and sinners is in Luke. And he emphasizes that. He emphasizes women in his gospel and families as well, and the poor. And we'll point that out as we go through, that this is one of the characteristics of the gospel of Luke. All right, enough said about Luke. Let's get into Luke, uh, starting again at verse 1. And let me read just the first, um, well, let's, let's read through verse 4 again and then go back and talk about it. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Just to point out, this is a classic way that books of this time began, even some letters of this time began. Um, the author states his purpose. Why is he writing? The author identifies the recipient, which he does here, who's, who's on the receiving end of this. He acknowledges that there are other reports about the same subject. Other things have been written about the same subject. And states his method or approach. What approach is he using to do this? But unlike many other classical books, the author here does not mention his name. In other words, again, Luke does not say, it is I, Luke. Think of Paul's letters. How many letters of Paul don't begin, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then go on from there? Paul always identifies himself. Luke does not. 
I want to say that I think in a way, while some people are critical of this, I think it's a great, again, a, almost an insight into Luke. Because if you don't even bother mentioning your own name, who is supposed to, where is all the attention supposed to be? On Jesus. Not on Luke. Not on himself. He could have, you know, said Luke and then gone on about himself and given a lot of details, but he did not. The focus or the main attention is to be on Jesus throughout the entire two-volume set. And I think that's something that not only all of us today, but I think especially pastors and others in the church need to remember that it's not about us. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And if we can just keep the focus there, uh, that's about 99% of uh, the other things take care of themselves. But the focus is on Jesus. Um, So first of all, notice there, he acknowledges that others have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that word literally means instead of you probably have that have been accomplished among us. Is that what you have in the ESV? That word literally means, in in the original language, have been fulfilled or have been fully carried out. In other words, they have been uh, completely fulfilled. There's no more fulfilling to do by Jesus. And we know that also from the cross, don't we? On the cross, Christ said, it is finished. And that word for finished in the original language, the telestai, means not only to have his life coming to an end, but everything he came here to do and accomplish was now finished. And that word, instead of finished, it, it actually means to reach its end. It's like you're in a race and you get across the finish line. And that's what Jesus is saying from the cross. That's what Luke is saying here as he begins his gospel. It points out again the connection between the prophecies in the Old Testament for what Christ was going to do and what was fulfilled by Christ. Filled full, we might say, by him. In other words, life, death, resurrection, everything he came to do. Now, others have, he says, others have undertaken to do this. We don't know how many others there were who did this. We have only the four Gospels. We have, of course, Paul's epistles and other epistles. But we don't know how many there were in the 30 to 35 years uh, between Christ ascending and Luke writing. Uh, What we have is what God has given us as a church in terms of these books. There are other so-called apocryphal books that are out there, and we uh, believe that they are not authoritative and that they are not inspired in the inerrant word of God. Uh, we've, uh, I don't know if any elders are here, but we did a, a three-part study with our elders on the apocryphal books, and uh, at the end of that, they wanted to get back in the Bible and <laughs> study, the, study the real thing again, which I, I concur. Uh, but they uh, were written... For example, you've got a, a, one called a Gospel of Thomas, and you've got, you've got other uh, apocryphal books. And again, we don't know how many more there were. We do believe that over the course of time, uh, the, God has led the church to those books to recognize those books that are inspired and inerrant and are the true word of God. 
In other words, those books that belong in what's called the canon, the collection of authoritative books. So how many there were out there, we don't know. What happened to them, we don't know. We do have some of these books, and again, don't take a lot of them to be authoritative. Now, notice though, who does Luke use as his sources? Does he go to all these other books that were out there and read them and say, well, I'll just collate all of this together and, uh, and I'll, I'll make this my writing? No, take a look at verse 2. Just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, uh, of the word have delivered them to us. So who would these eyewitnesses be that have delivered this to Luke? Mary would be one, yes. Others. The apostles, right, exactly. And so Luke, uh, this is, a, I think, an important point. Luke is not saying, I'm going to all these other sources that are out there, and again, just kind of reading them through and giving you a compilation of all of those. He's also... Um, he, he instead, I should say, is getting the direct eyewitness accounts from those who were eyewitnesses to those things. In other words, the life and ministry of Jesus and those who were there from the beginning. Okay? Yes? Yeah, okay, the, so the question was, the other books, there, there was a, are, are theories or... Um, uh, stories out there of the Catholic Church having a lot of things in secret in the Vatican. And I guess the, the connection with the question is that the Roman Catholic Church does hold the apocryphal books to be authoritative. Uh, uh, they were circulated, frankly, again, we don't want to get too far into this, but they were, the, the apocryphal books were circulated with the Latin Vulgate translation. That's why over time the Catholic Church has seen them to be authoritative, whereas others do not. And again, I, I am certainly no expert on, on uh, these so-called mysteries that are at the Vatican, but so I, I really don't, <laughs> I can't comment on, okay, all right, can't comment on that too much at all. Now, um, so, uh, so Paul says, you know, because all these other people are writing these accounts, it seemed good to me also, he says, having followed all things closely from some time past. We'd love to know more about that, you know, but again, Luke is not here to shine the light on himself, but he has been interested in these things, in other words, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and Christ's ministry for some time past to right now, number one, it's an orderly account, and it is. It is a well-organized, orderly account um, for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now we've got to stop right here and talk about who is Theophilus. The name Theophilus, the word literally means one who loves God or a lover of God. Theo or Theos is God, and you can see the second part of the name Philos, which is the uh, Greek word for a brotherly type of love. We have the city in the United States, city of brotherly love called Philadelphia. Okay, you're still awake. That's good. Philadelphia and a city of brotherly love. So this is a lover of God. Now, there are two theories on this as to this Theophilus. One theory is 
He's just writing for any lover of God out there. In other words, any Christian, anyone who is a lover of God, and that's the so-called generic uh, Theophilus theory. The other one, which again, I think most scholars favor, I certainly, not that I'm calling myself a scholar, but I, I would certainly favor this, that it is a particular individual named Theophilus. And the reason for this is, you see right before Theophilus, you've got most excellent Theophilus. And this actually was a title that was given to some in the upper echelon of Roman society, and in some cases the military, but even in the upper crust of Roman society. Most excellent Theophilus. I was trying to think if we have a this parallel in, in our country or in our language at all. I couldn't think of one, but honorable. Okay, thank you, Ruth. Yeah, honor, most honorable. What if we had that? Most honorable Theophilus. We would tend to think, well, he's not writing to just any generic person. He's writing to a specific individual named Theophilus. Now, let's go a little bit further. Let's say Theophilus is a highfalutin Roman citizen and is wealthy as is a man of means, there was a custom back at that time to dedicate a book to the person who is your patron and paid for the publication and the circulation of your book. You mentioned him very early on. Now again, this is speculation, but if this were true, Theophilus, who's mentioned both here and in the introduction to the book of Acts, may have been a patron for Luke and uh, actually paid for its publication and circulation of these two books. And notice there, it is with concern for Theophilus that Luke is writing these books. And apparently Theophilus... He wants him to have what? Certainty, in the, at the end of verse 4, have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Theophilus, we think again, is an individual who is being instructed in the faith or has been instructed in the faith. He has undergone some sort of catechesis. It doesn't say how much at this point. But Luke wants him to be sure about these things. And you know, I was thinking in that regard, uh, whatever the relationship is between Theophilus and Luke, isn't that all of our desires, especially when it comes to our own friends and our own family members, relatives, that they would have certainty concerning the things they have been taught, that they would come through the word of God to know it with all assurance and certainty. And that's, you can again, sense that there is a, a somewhat deep relationship here between Luke and whoever this Theophilus is. Okay? Now, let me ask a question here. Because Luke is not an eyewitness to these things, because he got reports from others who were eyewitnesses, does this negate the inspiration of these two books? In other words, are Luke and Acts, because, because Luke was not an eyewitness but is getting second reports from others, 
Does that discredit the fact that this is an inspired and inerrant word of God? No. You're all murmuring no, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, he talked to the, he got it from the right people. Exactly. But no, we believe, again, the Holy Spirit works. What, what is inspiration, by the way? Did God throw these people into a trance and they mechanically, uh, he dictated to them what they were supposed to write? No. It is, we believe that the inspiration of Scripture is that the words that finally ended up there were the words that God wanted there. It's as simple as that. And God used men uh, that had different vocabularies, had, as I mentioned before, different levels of linguistic ability, but we believe that what ended up on the page is what God wanted there on the page, and that over the course of time, he led the church to recognize the books that were inspired the inspired word of God versus other writings at that time. Um, uh, we, we call that the, the self-authenticating nature of the scriptures, that they authenticate themselves to us when we read it. It's not that, not that we sit down as a church and say, well, we're going to take this one and not this one. No, it's the self-authenticating nature of the scriptures. So I just want to make that clear. Paul does the same thing. Was, was Paul there as a disciple? No. And in 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's around verse 2 or 3, he says that I pass on to you what I received, right? That Christ, he goes through the crucifixion and all the, all the appearances that Christ made. So again, just to be clear, this does not negate the inspiration of Scripture. The oral tradition at that time was something that was taken very seriously. What you received, you then passed on. There's a two Greek words for that, par elabon, par etica, that you, what you received, you passed on. And they were very careful to do it accurately. We've kind of lost that, uh, that ability, I think, today. You ever see that game where they start at one end of a classroom, tell somebody a story, and then by the time it gets to the, like the 20th person, you hardly recognize the story anymore because so many details have been changed? Back then at that time when it was oral tradition, they were much more careful, and I think much more skillful at doing that uh, than we are today. Okay? All right. Let's go on and start. We're going to start at verse 5 now and go on. So ver first four verses are the introduction, we call it. Now we're going to start with uh, the announcement, and we're going to see the prediction, the announcing here of John the Baptist, the one who will come ahead to prepare the way for the Lord. So let's read, uh, let's just read 5 through 7 here. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. All right. In the days of Herod, this would be Herod the Great. Okay. Herod the Great ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Let me stop there for a moment. 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Anybody see... A problem here. What's the problem? 
the, uh, the birth of Christ, you know? Now, we'll cover this in a lot more detail, or whether it's me or one of the other pastors, we'll cover this in more detail when we get to the actual birth of Christ. And we have not only Herod, but Quirinius, and we can, we can get this to be very precise. The problem is not with the Gospel of Luke. The problem is in the Middle Ages when the calendars were converted. And there's a, I won't say his name, we'll, we'll cover this more later, but there's a monk who completely messed this up, quite frankly. So in our calendar, Christ was actually born, most people think, around 4, what we would consider today to be 4 B.C., right around that time. And again, don't run home and say, Pastor Thomas said the Bible is wrong and, and so on. The problem is not with the Bible. In fact, Luke is being great here at, and this is another characteristic of him, he will put things right into historic context and you know, emphasize that this is, not some, this is not some fairy tale out there. This happened when this guy was governor of Judea. Okay? So, we'll, and again, we'll get more details later on when we get to the actual birth of Christ. But Herod the Great, who is the same Herod who, uh, before Christ was born, greatly enhanced the temple in Jerusalem, the second temple. Remember when they, they come back, the, God's people come back from, uh, from captivity in Babylon, and they get to rebuild the temple, and at the dedication of the temple, they've got some people crying at the dedication of the temple, because it was just a shadow of its former self. How'd you like if we, if we dedicated the new school next door, and you got people weeping because it's, it's so bad compared to what the old school was, which is not the case. But uh, Herod comes along and greatly enhances the temple for God's people. By the way, when it says Judea, it's really all of Palestine at this time, that he's kind of the, the so-called king. Somehow he got on the good side of the emperor, and the emperor gave him this position. Um, Herod was uh, one of the great builders uh, of, of all time, of history. If you have ever been to Israel and you have seen Masada, if you've ever uh, seen the residence that he built about eight miles east of Jerusalem, um, Caesarea Maritime, uh, these are incredible places that are still in existence today. That's how well built they were. He also, uh, especially in his latter years, was uh, paranoid and we think had some real issues. Uh, he had two of his sons killed, had his wife killed because he was paranoid that they were plotting against uh, him. Uh, it, one of the emperors said it was, it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be one of his children at that time. Uh, he also, after he killed his wife, she was supposedly very beautiful, and he had her preserved in a pool of honey so that he could go and view her from time to time. So this is Herod. Uh, also, we think he may have suffered, he, we think he suffered from some kind of skin problem, uh, most likely thought to be leprosy, because if you go to Masada or you go to that house that I mentioned east of Jerusalem, uh, it, he had different, uh, like little tubs, uh, bigger than tubs, you know, one, about four in a row, and the water would get increasingly warm, and the last one would be quite hot. They'd have the slaves out there pumping air into it to get the heat way up. And he would jump from one pool to another, from one vat to another, we think, to bring relief to his, to his skin. So quite a guy, and I didn't mean to 
I didn't mean to go into that much on Herod, but he's the guy who is in charge. Now remember, what does he end up doing right after Christ is born? You get the slaughter, of, so-called slaughter of the innocents, right? He, he commands that all the male children two years and under be killed. And again, this is just fitting his, his character, unfortunately, right? And then when the wise men come and say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Luke makes it a point there. Herod was troubled, and all of Jerusalem was troubled as well, because they knew if Herod is troubled, we got trouble, right? All right, so he's the guy, and notice there was a priest, Zechariah. The word Zechariah, the name Zechariah, means God remembers. We, of course, have a, have a prophetic book in the Old Testament by the same name, uh, Yahweh, or God remembers. He is a priest of the order of Abijah. They are mentioned, uh, if you look... Uh, we won't look at it here, of course, but First Chronicles 24, uh, verse 10, they are mentioned as one of the priestly uh, classes. There were 24 different classes of these priests. He is in the one from Abijah. And these are all descendants of Aaron, who was the first priest uh, in the Old Testament. All the male descendants of Aaron were then in the priestly class. The rest of the tribe were always in the Levite class. The priests were the ones who actually did the sacrifices and basically led the worship. The Levites were the ones who cared for the tabernacle, or then then eventually temple. They cared for the physical properties. They were there at worship and provided uh, responses in song for the worship. But they did a lot of the physical uh, details with regard to the, the temple. Uh, I don't know if the trustees might be a good uh, comparison today or not, but uh, that's kind of what they did. Um, what he did, what he is going to do here, Zechariah, there were 24 classes of these priests, like I said. You got to serve for a week at a time, but make, uh, you did this twice a year. So that would make 48 weeks. So usually your priestly class would be on duty in Jerusalem twice a year, one week at a time, okay? And there were, at that time, uh, at that time, we're told, Josephus tells us, there were 20,000 priests and Levites at that time. 20,000. On a non-Sabbath day, Josephus also tells us that 56 priests were needed. On a daily, on a weekly basis, 56 priests. And on a Sabbath day, you added 28 more that were needed. 84 of them were needed for a Sabbath day. Now, what's going to happen here is that Zechariah, his group, it's going to be on duty. And what they did is they cast lots to see which priest is going to go and offer incense to God. This happened twice a day, so we don't know here whether it was in the morning or in the evening. But they cast lots. Remember when they had to pick uh, which, which disciple is going to succeed Judas Iscariot? And they cast lots. We don't know a lot about this. It's been compared to, to throwing dice. I don't like to make that comparison. It, something was done that let it be in God's control. In other words, we're not going to pick this Lord. You pick it. And... Zechariah, the, the lot fell to Zechariah. 
he is going to go and offer the incense, and we don't know again whether this was at the morning or at the evening because it was done twice a day. And once you did this, like Zechariah did, that was it. You could never do it again. So you would never, ever be in the same, you know, uh, even have a chance. You'd be out of consideration. You could only do it once in your life. And there he is, one time in his life, and the angel Gabriel is going to come and make the announcement. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, The incense altars were in the holy place, not in the most holy place or holy of holies. The Holy of Holies, remember, was only once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, where the high priest would go and sprinkle the blood and so on. So this was done daily, along with a lot of other you know, burnt offerings and so on uh, at the temple in the, in the holy place, not the most holy place. But, so, but again, just think of this. One day in his life, he gets to do this, and here comes the angel. Not by chance. This, is, this has been... Certainly God-directed, okay? Um, so he's there. They had, but we, we learned from them they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and that's the way that's usually expressed in Scripture um, when, when it talks of that. Now, let's go, finish the story here. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, that's the, his, his group, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. Again, we don't know what that exactly was, to enter the temple of the Lord that began the holy place and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Prayer in the scriptures is in a number of places connected with incense. Ever smelled incense? I don't know if incense has ever been used here at St. Paul's. Is anybody who's been here for a long time, has it ever been used here at St. Paul's? No? Okay. When I was at the seminary, as a student at the seminary, we had a professor, Old Testament professor, who I think just used to do it just to do it. And you'd be coming down the hallway, and you could smell the incense, and you knew that that professor must be leading chapel today because you could smell it. It's a, for those of you who haven't, I mean, again, it, it, it is a biblical custom, and there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, but I think some people have, they make a connection that it's, some other, you know, that it's Catholic or that it's some, something else, I don't know. But it, it is, if you look, for example, we won't look at it here, but if you look at Psalm 141, verse 2, we actually have this in our liturgy. Let my prayers rise before you as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice, right? So, I mean, we actually do this. We actually say this in our worship. Mark? Okay, burn the incense the day before Easter. With the, uh, the Easter vigil, was that, okay, with the, connected with the Easter vigil, yeah. So again, it's, it's, um, but it's a very pen- penetrating uh, uh, smell. Uh, you, you would remember it if we ever did it here, <laughs> and I don't plan to do it uh, anytime soon. So, yes. Hmm. Yes, yes. And I... Yeah, the sensor is what it's called. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that would be incense, and uh, we could we could talk a long time about this. I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but um, I think that's why I think some people associate it with a Catholic. Uh, but again, it is it is certainly biblical, 
and we even have it in our in our liturgy. You know that psalm that that psalm that compares it. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Okay, so again, prayer. He's in there. Zechariah is in there. Offering the incense, the people are praying at this hour of prayer. It could be evening, could be morning. And notice there, and the whole, uh, uh, see, verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord that we hear about in the Old Testament uh, time to time, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, are angels, do angels have flesh and blood? No, they're spirits. And so somehow this angel was endowed with some sort of physical quality so that he could be seen by Zechariah at this point. And he's standing at the right, the very clear, the right hand altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. I think we all would be, right? And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Uh, And uh, the the name John, uh, Yocham, is the Lord shows favor. The Lord shows favor. And so that's what happens. Now, so far things are great, but we're going to see Zechariah, this priest, uh, unfortunately... Doesn't respond in a, in a great way here. So finishing up, verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So this, this son is going to be called John. For he will be great before the Lord. And here it comes, and must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This... It's interesting that the angel throws in here, he's not going to drink any wine or strong drink. That uh, Strong drink literally, in the original language, is any intoxicating drink. So anything that would intoxicate him. And anybody know the name of the vow that existed in the Old Testament? That you were prohibited from drinking any alcohol from uh, at any point during, during the time you were under this vow? Nazarite vow. Boy, this is, again, this is a sharp class. Uh, Nazarite vow, and you can see this in the Old Testament um, in Judges 13 and in 1 Samuel 1. Samson, for example, was under a Nazarite vow. And it also, in, including not drinking alcohol, you did not cut your hair during this time. Your hair was to be let go. Remember Samson with the long hair? And what happens? Gets cut, right? And so that goes against the Nazarite vow. Samuel also, in the Old Testament, was under a Nazarite vow. And for those who have been in living way, Bible study with us, it appears that Paul undertook a temporary Nazarite vow in Acts chapter 21 because he has to hightail it back to Jerusalem And it makes a comment about there he would also cut his hair and offer a sacrifice. So the Nazarite vows were you could take a temporary one on yourself and dedicate yourself to God. It was kind of like 
is kind of like going off to a monastery. You, know, you, you separated from others. You focused on your relationship with God. You didn't drink at all. You didn't even bother to cut your hair. And you could do a temporary one of these, like Paul apparently did. Or, in this case, Samuel and Samson, it appears, were assigned to be Nazarites. Okay? Um, verse 16 uh, he will turn many, he will convert or turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and will go before, uh, and he will go, John, will go before him, the Lord their God, Christ, in the spirit of Elijah. Boy, I wish we had more time to get to this. Um, Elijah, in the spirit of Elijah. If you look, we won't look at it here, but if you look at Malachi 4, verse 5, Malachi predicts there that. Elijah will come before the great day of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, Jesus says, Elijah has already come. And then it says in verse 13 that the disciples knew he was talking about John the Baptist. Okay? So it's not that John the Baptist physically you know, turned into Elijah, it's that he was there as the Elijah, the one who was to come before the great day of the Lord. Okay? And um, anyway, we, I look at the timer. We're going to have to finish up. We're going to see uh, next week, or you will see next week, that the reaction that Zechariah has to this promise is one of unbelief, disbelief. How can this be? Because we're so advanced in age. You remember another uh, biblical account where the same thing kind of happened? You had a couple of people who were getting up there in the ears and didn't have any children, but God assured them. Who was it? Abraham. Sure, Abraham and Sarah. And uh, lo and behold, when Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90, there it comes. And uh, exactly a similar situation here with the birth of, uh, with the eventual birth here of John the Baptist to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. By the way, I didn't mention, I should have, uh, we kind of flew over it there, that both Zechariah and Elizabeth come from the line of Aaron. They are both from the line of Levi. They are both from the priestly classes uh, themselves. Zechariah, of course, serving as a priest, but Luke makes it clear that, uh, that Elizabeth also is, from, is a descendant of Aaron. So, uh, he is choosing, again, the priestly class to bring in this forerunner of Christ, the one who will go and prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Okay? All right, let's conclude then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.